Would you take your Bibles and turn to the book of Exodus chapter 34? Exodus 34. I'm going to read this passage. Um, this, is, this is God describing God. This is God telling us a little bit about himself. This is the first time in Scripture it happens. It is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the Old Testament. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness and rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation. We mentioned last week, like if you were God's PR guy, you would tell him to stop a sentence or two earlier. You'd be like, this punishing children thing is not going to play well with the crowds. We're going to talk about that next week. All right, so please come back. I know it feels troubling. There is actually good news buried there, really good news, because some of you are thinking, I'm not sure that I want to be held accountable for the things my grandpa did, but I want you to think about the fact that your grandkids will have to deal with maybe choices that you make now. Hmm. So think about that as you make choices. Even choices you make before you have children can impact your children and your children's children. There is good news wrapped up in there, so don't get too caught up. Don't get too worried, but we are going to talk about God's anger because that's part of who he is. It's part of who he reveals himself to be. Um, I like screen time to be social time. Uh, that's just one of the things that I like. I just want it to be that way. We, everybody has a screen in their pocket and everybody can be in the same room doing their own thing on their own screen. And I don't like that. I like screen time to be social time. So I like to figure out something that our entire family can watch together. That is not an easy task when you have somebody like me who likes certain things uh, and somebody like my wife who does not like those certain things. Like, my wife does not want to watch things that involve aliens, and that's, like, top on my list. Aliens? That sounds awesome. You know, science fiction? Very cool. She's not interested. And then I have a 14-year-old. She's interested in different things, and we also have a 9-year-old. So we have to figure out something that will kind of span these generations that we can all kind of enjoy together. And there's been a few things that, that do that. Most recently, and this is a little bit of confession, I feel a little guilty talking about this, but most recently the thing that we found that we can all watch and enjoy together is a reality show called Hoarders. <laughs> I know, it's like, I, okay, so a couple things. First of all, hoarding is a mental health issue and the show deals with that. It's a little bit maybe uh, sensational in the sense that you're getting to look at somebody's life and see kind of the worst parts of somebody's life. But the show, I think, does a good job of talking about that. They bring in therapists. So I say that all to assuage my guilt for watching the show and taking pleasure in somebody else's misfortune. But these houses are basement to rafters filled with stuff. It is unbelievable. I don't even know how the cameramen get in there to take like the before pictures because there's, you just, you're crawling over mountains of stuff. And then, you know, these people, the hoarders, because it is a mental health issue, they don't necessarily want to be helped. Like in part, they know that something's wrong, but then when people come in to help them, they're rude and they're mean and they're trying to push people away. And in one of the first shows we watched, it's this stepmother doesn't have a good relationship with her stepchildren anyway, but the stepchildren are like, people can't live like this. So the stepchildren are like, we're going to help you. And the stepmom is like, no, you're terrible. I hate you saying all these bad things. And the stepchildren, it's just written all over their faces. It's just like, deep breath. 
we're going to go in and move into this mess anyway and clean it up and fix it because humans shouldn't live like this. And the show is like so unbelievable because if you told me, hey, Patrick, you're going to enjoy a show with your family about extreme cleaning, I would have been like, that's the silliest thing. But now every time like, hey, Liam, you should clean your room. And Liam's like, I don't want to clean the room. Remember Hoarders? Remember the last episode? It's bad. You know, you might find a dead rat or a squirrel or something in there. So you need to get cleaning, buddy. Um, but this, it's, it's, a human, it's a human being, and it's not okay that a human being lives this way. So people, despite the resistance from the person that needs help, move into the mess in order to bring life and wholeness and wellness into this situation. We're in a new series, and the series is called Strange God. And the truth, uh, this is true whether you believe it or not. In fact, I sometimes think this is true, especially when people don't believe it. But your ideas about who God is have a dramatic impact on your life, more than you realize. During, this, during the week, I was talking to several members, and we're just, you know, talking about, like, so what are some of the misconceptions that you have about God? And, you know, one person says they, they, uh, they just believe that God is sort of an authoritarian dictator, and following him is exhausting. And they know that's not true, because there's these verses that Jesus said about, hey, come to me, I will make your burden easy and light, you'll find rest for your souls. But just at, at the end of the day, when they're lying in bed, they're like, I just need, God must be you know, he's, he's, he's demanding and I'm exhausted and trying to do the right thing is just overwhelming. Another person said, God's, I mean, I just feel like, I know it's not true, but I just feel like God's constantly disappointed. Like he's just a disappointed, distant father and every, you know, everything I do, God's just kind of shaking his head and he's just like mildly upset, like, ah, man, again, come on. And they're like, I know that's not true, but I struggle with that. I still struggle with that. Some people, somebody else told me that they struggle with God feeling, getting mad at them because they got mad about something and they have to suppress their anger. And you know what happens when you suppress your anger, right? It just comes out in other ways that are unhealthy. And the ironic thing is, is that they thought God got angry with them for being angry. And it's just like, well, maybe God's hypocritical. Uh, one person said, and this, I, I, it's kind of funny, but it's tragically funny. They said they've been struggling with this belief. They heard a sermon when they were a, a small child that at least implied to them that if they didn't express gratitude for every single thing, then God would take that thing from their lives. And I'm not talking about, thank you, God, for my family, for my home. It was like, thank you for the ketchup in the fridge because I want to have ketchup for my, you know, mashed potatoes or whatever. Thank you, God, for my hat on my wall. Thank you, God, for my shoe and my shoelaces because they were afraid that God was ready to snatch those gifts back if they didn't express appropriate gratitude for everything in their lives. These are misunderstandings of God that have dramatic impacts on people's lives. And we all have them. We all have them in various ways. They're all misconceptions of God's character. And when we replace the false with the true, your life is changed. When you take a false belief and you replace it with something true about who God is, your day-to-day life is dramatically transformed because you are living in response to reality, not falsehood. It's so important that we understand who God truly is. But the tricky thing is it's hard because we're not always aware of the false ideas that we have about God. You're not always aware. You don't believe something is false because if you did think it was false, you wouldn't believe it. You just have these ideas that you've inherited, you've assumed, you've grown up. Maybe you heard somebody teach something that was wrong or untrue, and it's just lodged in your psyche. It's lodged in your belief system, and you're not realizing that it's, it's false. 
So this series is about developing a clear picture of God, just getting a real true idea of who he is so that our lives will be transformed. And, and, and we want to anchor it in what God said about himself. And the very first two words that God said about himself when God said, hey, everybody, here I am. Here's what I want you to know. I am compassionate and gracious. This is the first thing God wants us to know about who he is. The very first two things that he said, I am compassionate and I am gracious. Those are nebulous words, you know? They're kind of ill-defined. They're nice words, but they don't have a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, clinical accuracy to them. When, when, you, when you think of compassion and grace, we think of like, oh yeah, God is good, God is nice, God is... But what does that truly deeply mean? Because in Hebrew, they actually mean something. And in fact, it's kind of cool because in Hebrew, the words compassion and grace always appear, almost always appear together. So you know how in English there's certain phrases that are two words and you always say them together like, uh, I'll be with you through thick and through thin. Or like many of us were at a wedding yesterday and the wedding vows are for better or worse. You know, you don't just say one. I'll be with you for worse. You know, that sounds weird. I'll be with you for better. No, it's got to be the whole thing. Through thick and through thin, through better, through worse, through richer, through poor, compassion and grace. These two words go together in Hebrew, and they're often together and most often used to describe the character of God, compassion and grace, compassion and grace. But how exactly should we understand them? Like, what what do these actually mean about God, and what does this matter to my actual day-to-day life? Beyond the niceties of the idea, what kind of real-life impact should these truths have? I think we struggle a little bit uh, being familiar with religious language, singing religious songs, that these concepts just, we're so exposed to them that we, they kind of lose their, the depth of their meaning because we're like, yeah, God's compassionate, God's gracious, that's great, but all right, what does that actually mean? And I think knowing that God is a God of compassion and grace is vastly different than living as if God is a God of compassion and grace. So let me, let me give you this example. Um, imagine compassion and grace as this, this combo idea, and imagine it as a spectrum. And on one end of the spectrum is, is easy compassion. So those of you that have children, you remember this moment in your, in your children's life when, you know, they looked up at you and they raised their arms and, you know, it pulled on the, your heartstrings and you pick up your little child and you gather them to your arms and they throw their little tiny arms around your neck and they lay their head on your shoulder and you're just, I don't know, have you ever had, you're just hugging this child and you're like, I would fight a bear for this child and you're like, why would I ever need to fight a bear? But if there were a situation, I would do it, you know, I would take a bullet for this child and you're sitting and you're just, oh, this is a special moment. I'm going to remember it forever. And then there's, there's that smell that comes from the diaper area of the child. And you're sitting there loving them. And you're like, oh, boy. <laughs> is mom around? Oh, I guess I'm going to have to handle this one myself. And because you have compassion, you're willing to move in and clean your child so that they can live a whole well life, right? That's compassion and grace. But that's easy, right? A parent has that. It's just natural. It's hardwired into us. We get that. That's, that's, a, that's kind of an easy one. Most humans can get there. If you move along the spectrum of compassion and grace, somewhere in the middle is 
compassion that's a little harder to access. Most of us can get there because we've all had a human experience, you know. Maybe you've been, uh, maybe you remember when you were learning to drive and you remember how terrified you were and you remember your parent was yelling at you because you did something wrong and you're about to break down into tears and you're going along and you don't want to cause an accident. You remember that. So when you're driving and you realize that you're behind someone who's learning to drive, you can access that compassion and you can respond with grace to that person. Even though they're slowing you down, even though they're blocking two lanes of traffic, even though they clearly don't know what you're doing, you can access compassion and you can respond with grace. Uh, Taya, um, our, our oldest daughter, right after she had first gotten her license, she got rear-ended and it was the other car's fault. And, uh, you know, of course, she's freaking out a little bit. It's her first accident. She doesn't know what's about to happen. Is she going to go to jail? She has no idea. And so we, you know, we give her advice. We show up. They had pulled into a Wendy's parking lot to kind of exchange information. And sadly, it was another teenage girl that had rear-ended her, and she had not totaled her car, but her car was undrivable. And our car, it happens to be my car, had a hole in the bumper. And, uh, and I still have a hole in the bumper because I just took the money and ran. But anyway, <laughs> it just had a hole in the bumper, and it was completely drivable. And uh, so they're exchanging all this information. The police come. It just feels all serious and everything. And they happen to be in a Wendy's parking lot. And Taya's like, well, I guess I can go now because my car drives just fine. And this poor girl has to wait for a tow truck. And she, you know, we talked a little bit. And she went over to the car uh, of the girl who had rear-ended her and said, hey, I, I'm sure this is a really hard day. I don't, I don't suppose, are you hungry? Can I grab you something to eat here at Wendy's? This is the person who had just rear-ended her. And she's offering to buy her a meal. That's compassion because of the human experience, right? We've all been in those moments and we can relate and we can respond with grace. So it's not as easy to get there as your own little baby, but it's, it's easy to get there because people are humans. But then there's this third level of compassion, and it's where someone has legitimately wronged you. You would be well within your rights to respond with judgment and condemnation. They are just asking for it. They're asking for your, your, your angry words. They're asking for your judgment. They're asking for your frustration. They're asking for it. Their face is asking to be punched. And you, you would be well within your rights. Anybody around you would say, yes, that would be an appropriate response because you have been wronged by this person. But yet there is still sometimes deep within us this difficult to access compassion that realizes that response will not produce anything good. And even though I have been wronged, I will dig deep and I will move with compassion, even though I don't particularly feel it, and I will respond with grace to the situation. And that happens rarely. In fact, there's these incredible stories, one of which happened right here in the cities where two young men were fighting. One killed the other. The, the one that, you know, the murderer went to prison and the mom of the victim visited him in prison. And when he was released from prison, the mom of the victim invited him into her home so that he would have a place to go. I mean, that is that third level black belt ninja sort of compassion. That's incredible. And it's an amazing thing when we see it because it doesn't happen all the time. It's a beautiful thing. God is saying, that is the type of person I am. 
That is my character. That sort of compassion. That is who I am. That's what God is trying to reveal about himself. It's the first thing he reveals about himself when he says, this is who I am. I am that type of being. I operate that way. I look at situations where people are resistant, where people have created a mess so big that they can't fix it, and and they're resistant to me trying to help them and to bring anything good into this. I look at those situations, and I feel compassion. I am moved with compassion, and I interact with grace. That's what God is saying about himself. That's what this verse is telling us, compassion and grace operating together. This is important. Grace without compassion feels cheap and manipulative. When you're just cutting somebody some slack, but you're not really feeling it, grace without compassion feels cheap and manipulative. Compassion that doesn't lead to grace is just a hollow platitude. It's just making yourself look good. When you, when you say you have compassion, but it doesn't lead you to operate in grace. But this is the first thing that God wants us to notice him, uh, about him. Yahweh, Yahweh, the compassionate and gracious God. Now, um, I, I like movies. I mean, who doesn't, right? I like movies. I like TV shows. Um, I was reading this article by a screenwriter, and he said there's really only about six plots in any movie or TV show you've ever seen. There's six of them. That's all. There's six. And I'm like, that's kind of true, right? Every time you watch a movie, you're like, oh, yeah, this is basically Star Wars, or this is basically The Princess Bride, or this is, I mean, this is ba- there's basically just a few pots, you know, the good guy fights the bad guy, the good guy wins, like, oh, shocker. But I, you know, we still get into those stories. We still like those stories. Um, I, <laughs> I, uh, in my very short lifetime, because I'm very young, there have been 11 Batman movies, 11, 11 of them. How many Batman movies do we need? You know how many of those Batman movies I've seen? All of them. I've seen them all. They're coming out with another Batman movie next year. You know what they're calling it? The Batman. Real original. Am I going to go watch that movie? Yes, I'm going to watch it. Because I haven't seen Batman with the guy from Twilight yet, so might as well see. There's been six different actors in my lifetime who have played Batman. Did you know that? Six different actors. And I have seen all of them because I'm compelled by the story. Batman, he's an orphan rich orphan, but he's still an orphan, and he takes out all his anger on bad guys, and I get into the story, and it's fascinating, and you know what's going to happen? It's going to be the same thing. Is Bruce Wayne still going to be an orphan? Yep, he's going to be an orphan. Is he still going to be angry and brooding? Yep, and am I going to watch it? Yep, I'm going to watch it because it's a story I like. You know how many stories there are in Scripture? There's one. There's one story in Scripture, and it plays itself out over and over and over And if you're paying attention, you'll realize, wait a second, I've read this story before. Humans make a mess so big that they can't solve it. And God, moved with compassion, enters into that mess to rescue them with grace. From the very beginning to the very end, one story over and over and over again. It's unbelievable. Every single time, God does it. Is God going to rescue his people this time? And he sure does. Let me give you a couple examples. In the book of Judges, um, you, you, those of you who have been around churches for a while, we do this thing, or we, we used to do this thing called Bible Bowl. Do you remember that? Bible Bowl. And Bible Bowl is where, like, the kids study, deeply study a book of the Bible, and then they play a trivia game, and whoever answers the most questions right gets, like, some sort of prize, and... I mean, really, the price should be knowing the Bible. But anyway, so they're doing this Bible Bowl, and we do it every year. And, okay, it's time to do Bible Bowl this year. And, you know, parents are like, great, we're going to do a deep dive. We'll study. The kids are really going to know. They're going to know all the pronunciations of all the names and all the stories and all the details. 
And uh, that, that what, so what book are we studying this year? This has probably been five or six years ago, maybe more now. And uh, the, the book we were studying that year was the book of Judges. Judges. You know what parents did? They were like, mm-mm. I'm not having my kid read the book of Judges because it is a messed up book. Judges is a train wreck and parents were literally like, nah, I'm not going to have my kid get really intimately knowledgeable about the book of Judges. It is, it is a crazy book. It is seriously, I just finished reading it in kind of my personal study and it's just like, you're just, what in the world is going on? Why is this book in the Bible? It is tragedy after tragedy, scandal after scandal. Even the heroes are sketchy characters in the book of Judges. The good guys, Samson, he's a good guy, right? Uh Uh-uh, man. Listen, that guy's story is messed up, and it's in the book of Judges. And there's this verse in the book of Judges, because you're just reading. It's like one story. People are terrible, and God rescues them. But check this out. Judges chapter 10, verse 10. This is so cool. The point of the story is in the scandal. Look at this. The Israelites cried out to the Lord. Like, here we go again, because this is just every few chapters. This is what they do. And they say, we have sinned against you, forsaking God and serving the Baals. Of course, the Baals are the local gods. They just kept going back to them. Verse 11, the Lord replied, hey, do you guys recall when the Egyptians and the Amorites and the Ammonites and the Philistines and the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Moanites oppressed you and you cried to me for help? Did I not save you from their hands? Haven't we heard this story before? Isn't this Lucy in the football and she's begging Charlie to kick it again? I mean, we've seen this story before and we know how it's going to go. I saved you all those other times and you went right back to those gods. Verse 13, but you have forsaken me and served other gods. So I will no longer save you. Now, that's a little bit of a surprise when you read that. You're like, wait a second. God, you're not, that's, you're not supposed to say that. And he says, I will no longer save you. Go cry out to the other gods that you have chosen. Let them save you when you get in trouble. God's like, it's not, it's not going to be me this time. I'm not falling for that trick again because I've saved you before and you've just gone right back to the trash heap. What's, not, not this time. But you guys know, don't you? You know that the verse doesn't end there. You know that. You know that's not who God is. God himself, even when he tries to deny his character, he can't. Verse 15, look at this. But the Israelites said to the Lord, we've sinned. We, we know it. We've sinned. Do with us whatever you think best, but please rescue us now. Then they got rid of the foreign gods among them and served the Lord. And listen to what it says. And he, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. You knew God was going to come around, right? You knew it. Even if you're in the story and you're like, God, I will no longer save you. And then he's like, you know what? I just can't let these, I can't. Okay, fine. I'm coming to save you. And God saved them. And you know what they did in the next chapter? They went right back to the bales again. Right back. And God's like, oh, come on. Seriously. But that's who he is. He saves them again and again because that's his character. He's moved with compassion and enters into this mess with grace. The point of Judges is to reveal this one story of God, of who he is, a God of compassion and grace. They made a mess too big to clean up, and he jumps in and rescues them. Jonah, we all get caught up in the story about the fish, which is really not the point of the story. The point of the story is in Jonah chapter 4, and for some reason most people stop before they get to chapter 4. In chapter 4, you know, God has told Jonah, all right, preach to these people. Jonah preaches to these people. He's like, fine, God, after the whole thing with the fish. Fine, God, I'll go preach to these people. And the whole town repents. The whole town is like, oh, we have sinned against God. And so you'd think, oh, great, God wins. Jonah should be happy. This is great. Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. And this made Jonah very angry. Come on. What? 
This made Jonah very angry, or Jonah seemed very angry. Like, are, are you serious? Like, Jonah, why would you be angry? Uh, or, excuse me, he, it seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew, and check this out, look at what he quotes. I knew you were a, a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sin and calamity. I knew it. I knew you were going to be nice to these people, and it's so annoying, God. They don't deserve your niceness. I just knew it. So aggravating. You know, in fact, God, it would be better for me to die. I don't even want to see you giving your compassion to people that don't deserve it. Just take my own life. This is miserable. I want out. <laughs> God's compassion is so good that even people on God's side think God goes overboard. Even people on God's side think God goes overboard in giving his compassion to people. It's so big. It's so good. How many of you have grown up around churches that have been suspicious of grace because they're afraid that if we show too much grace, then people are just going to continue living in sin? People in churches who are on God's side are suspicious of God's compassion and grace on people that they don't think deserve it. Maybe we don't go quite as far as Jonah, say, just take my life, but we have the same thing. Jesus... Jesus was trying to help people understand the character of God. And, of course, Jesus tells stories. And he said, um, yeah, you know, Luke 15, he says, God's like a, he's like a father. He's like a father. And, and they're like, yeah, that makes sense. God's like a father. I get that. That's good. And he's like, no, no, no. God's like a father with a rebellious son. And I'm like, oof, okay, yeah. So God's, you know, really has to bring down the hammer. No, no, no. God's like a father who just acquiesces to his rebellious son and lets him do things that are harmful to the father and to the son. Oof. What? That doesn't sound that doesn't sound right. God is like a father who has a rebellious son who stands at the end of the driveway longing for his son to return. No guarantees that he will, but longing for his son to return. And when he sees his son at the end of this long driveway while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. And many of you know the story goes on, right? Because there's the older brother, and the older brother acted just like Jonah did in the book of Jonah. Like, come on, God, how can you be so compassionate? That guy's terrible. You're just going to reinforce that bad behavior. And God says, no, he was dead, and now he's alive. He was lost, but now he's found. I am a God of compassion. I moved and I move with grace in to clean up these awful situations. Yeah, uh, you know, if I, were, if I were to introduce somebody and I, you know, were to have them up here and I, were, and I were to say like, oh, this is the smartest, funniest, most amazing person that you've ever met, everybody would be like, well, Patrick's lying. I mean, he's not the smartest, funniest, most amazing. You would know that I was exaggerating to kind of make a point. No, I really want you to... You cannot exaggerate the compassion and grace of God. You cannot oversell it. You cannot, you cannot speak of it too highly or too greatly. You cannot tell people too much about it. You can't tell them that it, it, it won't go that far. There's no depths that God's compassion and grace won't reach. There's nothing that you can say that will outdo his actual compassion and his grace for people who are in trouble. It is impossible to exaggerate the compassion and grace of God. No matter how over the top you describe it, it will always be greater. It will always be bigger. But here's the tragedy. If we don't believe that God is full of compassion and grace, then we don't come to him with our weakness and our sin. 
what we do is we say, you know what, I'll just, I'll just keep the front door closed and nobody can see my hoarding problem. I'll just pretend that everything's okay. And you know what, church? Man, lots of us struggle with this we, because we don't really believe God is a God of compassion and grace. We've created a facade that everything's great, everything's fine, and maybe if we can convince everybody else that everything's fine, it will be almost as good as if it is truly fine. We'll run from him, we'll hide our sin, we'll try to clean it up ourselves. Have any of you ever done that? You know what happens when you try to clean it up yourself? <laughs> it just gets bigger. We'll deny, we'll blame, and we'll just continue to live in our miss, m- mess because we, want, we, just want, we, we don't want God to really come in and clean it up because we're not sure that he's going to show us compassion and he's going to show us grace. We're a little nervous that he's going to show us judgment and condemnation. Did you know judgment's the last thing that God wants to show you? Literally, the last thing. It's the last book of the Bible. It's the last thing that God wants to do with the world is judgment. In fact, God has been withholding judgment so long that people have started to say, well, is God even real? And he's like, listen, I'm real. I'm withholding judgment because I am patient and I am full of compassion and grace and I want everybody to come to repentance. It's the last book of the Bible because it's the last thing that he wants to do. It's why he saved it for the very end. God wants to move in compassion and respond in grace, but we have to let him. Listen, we're not minimizing sin. And this is the thing churches get all uh, wrapped up uh, around. Like, well, Patrick, if you talk too much about compassion and grace, then people will just walk around and do whatever they want to do. They won't take sin seriously. It's not true. It's never been true. In fact, the more you emphasize God's compassion and grace, the more that they'll realize my sin is great, but his grace is greater That's what they'll realize. In fact, we're going to sing a song here in just a second that has that line, my sin was great, his grace was greater. We'll realize how incredible his love is, not how small our sin is. We'll realize how big he is, not how big our sin is. That's what is the result of knowing that God is a God of compassion and grace. That's what it's always been about. Years ago, years ago, I preached in this little tiny church and uh, I preached a revival, and that was back in the day where, you know, they would bring you in, and they would, uh, they would have you speak every single night. And I remember, I don't know, it was like Tuesday or Thursday, I was like, I'm going to preach about grace. <laughs> you know, I mean, that should be pretty standard, right, for churches. Grace should be a pretty basic topic. And I just have this vivid memory of the preacher of that local church getting up afterwards and saying, wow, I mean, I've just never heard anything like that before. And I'm just like, what a tragedy. I wonder if that's why it was a small church. But what a tragedy that people who were coming together every Sunday had somehow missed the point. They had missed the point, the very first thing that God wants to reveal about himself, that he is a God of compassion and grace, and he longs to move into your mess and begin to clean it up. But we have to bring it to him. We have to open ourselves up to that reality. 